Here's to the finest crew in Starfleet. Engage. Welcome to the Greatest Generation, Deep Space Nine. It's a Star Trek podcast by a couple of guys just a little bit embarrassed about having a Star Trek podcast. I'm Adam Pranica. I'm Ben Harrison. We're, we're here. We stand to thwart the end. This is a pretty special occasion for us because uh, this is a once every couple of years thing we get to do. Yeah. Which is send off a Star Trek program with a final episode from The Greatest Generation about it. Yeah. We can look back on a series consumed, look forward to another series that we will consume. This Star Trek buffet is all you can eat, Dan. <laughs> and I'm not planning on leaving yeah. anytime soon. Yeah. Uh, and it's the 351st episode of The Greatest Generation. Yeah. Who'd have thought? We're, we've almost made... A greatest generation for every day of the year. What a terrible challenge someone will take that as. <laughs> yeah. That'll that'll kill you dead. <laughs> I really am feeling good about the occasion, you know? I think I approached the show far more reluctant than I was to do the next generation as a series. Yeah. This one being so much more unknown to me. And I wasn't really sure what it was going to be or if I was going to, jo to enjoy it as much. But as a series, I think I really have grown to appreciate it quite a bit. I mean, there are a lot of people that say DS9 is peak Trek. A lot of people that say it's their favorite of the, t of the Trek series. I'm going to stop short of saying that. Yeah. But I, but I do like it a lot. Well, you know, TNG is my heart, but, uh, but yeah. I... I, I have to say that the past couple of years of reviewing Deep Space Nine with you have been a delight, and uh, I'm I'm a little bit sad to see it go. There's some pretty compelling reasons to feel that way, and I think as we go through the final episode, uh, we'll do our best to call those out. But I think for now, Ben, I'm looking at uh, a bottle of sparkling wine mm. and a bucket of ice. This is the good stuff. Uh, I'm looking at a coffee. I'm looking at a packet of Brode. Oh, wow. Uh, I think I've got everything set up. You've got the and kit. ready to go. <laughs> yeah, I've got, I've got my greatest gen kit ready. What about you? Uh, I don't have any coffee. I don't... Uh, I think my Brode is in the house. Oh, no, Ben. And I'm, I'm, of course, out here in my bunker. It's my a quarter mile back to the back to the house if you want yeah. to get that broad. We got like thirty-five mile gusts of wind going here today, so going going outside for broads is a risk to my health. I really hope this episode doesn't devolve into uh, the final ten minutes of the never-ending story when like <laughs> the windows are shattering and we're uh. screaming at each other trying to finish the episode. <laughs> <laughs> the nothing consumes all and we wind up on chunks of floating space rock yeah. that somehow still have atmosphere yeah with uh with princesses that aren't our wives yeah it's gonna be tough to answer for <laughs> i think uh i think my wife knows that princesses get my hall pass wow <laughs> lucky you i don't think i have one of those <laughs> Uh, nobody really does, Adam. 
It's mm. fictional. <laughs> right. As are princesses. Nobody is actually divinely ordained to be the sovereign of a country. Oh, boy, Ben. You, you done did it. You gave us our pivot into show. <laughs> Speaking of that kind of ordained, we have a show not quite primarily concerned with that of the Cisco, but, uh, but a big, big part of the story ahead has to do with him. What do you say we get into it? Yeah. Should we pop this... champagne corks to, to theme? I think that's a great idea. Ben, it's, uh, it's Deep Space Nine, Season 7, Episodes 25 and 26. They are called What You Leave Behind. I am pouring a bottle of Las Jaras 2018 sparkling wine. This is an unfiltered sparkling wine. Oh, wow. Like a pet gnat? We're all great sparkling wines belong. A vessel worthy of it. A lot of people don't remember that Taco Bell did have a a, a, a method traditionnel sparkling wine on the menu when they did those glasses. Cheers to you. Cheers to you, ben. my friend. And uh, cheers to all of the friends of DeSoto out there who have made it this far with us. Yeah, thank you. Do you realize how incredible this is? <laughs> no. Of course you don't. So the way you want to start your series finale is uh, with a topless Bashir. Oh, yeah. Let's see that hunk. Very nice. Cleared up a lot of unanswered questions. There's a very fun camera move here, Ben. Were you following along with what looked to be a camera handoff over the top of the bed? Oh, no, I didn't. Uh, I didn't notice that they handed it off. That's great. It. It seems like we start in profile on the Bashir side of the bed, which I'm yeah. going to call driver's side of the bed. <laughs> Esri's on passenger side, and, and the camera starts on driver's side, shooting in profile, this two-shot. And then it kind of goes up and tilts down and then goes in profile on the passenger side. And I'm wondering wow. how they did this shot if they didn't hand it off. Yeah. Maybe they just had the, the steady cam guy walking around on the bed. <laughs> in between them <laughs> i wonder if that's a half bed too like because you yeah. never see past you never see lower than the nips yeah, so you, they, you never see uh you never see how low the spots go you just yeah you just hear them comment on it i think esri is pretty surprised at uh how interested bashir was in water sports <laughs> the very first time they hook up i suppose you want to tell miles why would i want to do that they're like, well, I'm glad we went back to your place. <laughs> the uncomfortable part of this scene is with every movement they make in the bed, you can hear the vinyl mattress cover move uh, beneath them. <laughs> yeah. I had to special order this mattress. <laughs> I ordered the cover, but they didn't have covers for triangular pillows. How sure were you that a main character would die this episode? Because this kicks off a series of vignettes that, that sort of go in the promise you won't die category of conversations mm -hmm. with people that we care a lot about. I think that there were versions of the script where that did happen. Like, I think that like the first version of the script was like Cisco dying in battle on their way to Cardassia. And I feel like that 
maybe this could be like a vestige of that version of the script, like getting us ready for the idea of the mortality of these characters. I mean, except that the that the payoff doesn't give us that. I mean, it's a it's a half death. Yeah, it's, it's not true death. Well, you know, in in most faith traditions, death is uh, but a beginning. Just as the marriage of Miles O'Brien contains <laughs> multitudes, these pancakes couldn't kill me because I was already dead. Yeah, who was that lady in 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 O'Brien's apartment? Did you recognize I, her? I had to look her up, okay. and uh, I was pleasantly surprised by Keiko O'Brien in this scene. Oh, right. She was a, a, a minor character on TNG. That does ring yeah. a bell. Yeah, she's great. There was just the one scene with her. Yeah. They literally brought That's her all. back for like two lines. It's true. And I'm all for it. A, a two-line comeback? Yeah. Give me that all day. I'll come back for that. Yeah. And it in an interesting way, in a way that had me expecting and looking in the corners of scenes for more moments like this, you know? To the episode's credit, I think they did do a great job. I think over the course of the previous episode and this one, like tying things up to one extent or another with just about every single character that ever mm-hmm. had a recurring role. Right. But yeah, I, I kind of wished Keiko got a little bit more. Uh, I'm looking over at Lita in the corner of this of this description, kind of like shaking her head. <laughs> I mean, she's going to be the uh, first lady of, of Ferenginar, so. I guess, yeah. She's going to fucking hate that planet, given how tall she is. Oh, Every single yeah. door. She has to go to she's like gonna waste. She's going to wear a foam helmet wherever she goes. <laughs> Another uh, minor character that did have a recurring role is, for some reason, Jake, who shows up in this episode. Doesn't have as much to do as Nog. Sounds necessary to me. Cassidy Yates is feeling some uh, pregnancy discomfort. And it made her feel especially pregnant in all the worst ways. A discomfort she is not willing to address with uh, any of the many drugs that are for sure an option to her. I wondered about that. Like, isn't this... Something that could be just a six-bay trip away from not being a problem in the 24th century. Yeah. You would like to hope. You're sort of unintentionally forced to compare all of these goodbyes happening. I really like how Ben Sisko has to promise to come back after the war, and Ezri and Bashir (laughs) promise something kind of like that, and that's never on the table with Keiko and Miles, who are like (laughs) full-on into their return-to-Earth conversation, and... And yeah. not really talking about the risks involved in this last mission. I mean, Miles knows how much trouble he'd been if he didn't. He'd be in if he didn't come back from the war, right? Like that would be his ass. Miles can't say it, but I think a part of him is looking forward to the sweet embrace of death that uh, <laughs> that could be possible on a mission like this. Try to get some sleep. He's like, is there any way I could sit closer to something that will explode on the bridge? You know who's got a bucket that would be super useful to Cassidy Yates at a time like this? The Mr. Bucket. Like a bucket that is conspicuously missing from yeah. next to the couch where it should be is Odo, who is uh, doing the walk with Worf on the promenade on their way to, de- to the Defiant. Everyone is sort of having their final moments before disembarking. They are heading toward Cardassia. This is the big armada of ships that will uh, take the fight to the Dominion. And 
Odo is coming with. He's not. Uh, he's not staying behind. They're they're basically leaving an empty station so that they can go fight this war. I kind of wish we saw that a little more. You're so right about that. Like Quark says it later. Like there's a half a dozen people at his bar in an entire day. Yeah. But the contrast between this massive convoy outside disembarking is awesome. But uh, there is never the cut back to to the promenade and the dust bunny that rolls by. <laughs> we cut over to Cardassia, where I really feel like uh, a Cardassian sunset should be the name of a drink. Really, I feel like they're having to turn up the beauty of Cardassia up to 10 now uh, yeah. to counterbalance what it's going to look like in just a few hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the... Uh... The grayness needs to look different from normal later. Right. <laughs> uh, well, I guess a Cardassian sunset would have to be a Canar-based drink. Is it just Canar with a layer of grenadine and then a layer of orange juice? You pour the Canar over the back of your bar spoon, and, uh, and that way it doesn't mix with the other ingredients. I don't know, man. I think if you pour your Canar over the back of a... Uh Cardassian, you might break the internet, Ben. <laughs> Those guys got spoons everywhere. Yeah. You think a Cardassian has a cum spoon instead of a cum gutter? <laughs> is that what that is? Yeah, probably. So, change leader is in the big sequence phase of her illness. She's sort of wearing like a feather boa of leaves. Yeah. In Dominion HQ. She and Dot Prawn and Wayun are working out the defense of Cardassia. Of course, they've all kind of like withdrawn to the borders of Dominion controlled space and are now kind of putting up a line of defense that, uh, you know, they're worried about. There's, uh, there's some weakness in the middle of the line. I love that, like, the the language of war has not really changed over the centuries, right? Yeah. We're still talking about holding the line. We're st- still talking about breaking through lines like that. Like, it's a way for a contemporary audience person to understand war strategy and space. But I think we can agree that it kind of doesn't make sense. Yeah. Right? <laughs> In I always wonder how it would work in three dimensions, you know? Like, Mm -hmm. it's one thing if it's the Civil War and you've got, like, a hedgerow that you're going to set troops up along one side of and then, like, defend that line as an onslaught comes toward you. But, like, if it's a bunch of starships in three-dimensional space, like, there's nothing to stop a bunch of fighters from, like, going up and over. Yeah. (laughs) And... Except the strategy being described is like Space Gettysburg, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Change leader is like, I did this not for my defense of slavery, but for states' rights. <laughs> <laughs> and Wayun is like, the founder is wise. <laughs> right. <laughs> Change leader is really psyched about working with Thought Prawn, who she thinks like really takes care of business in a way that... Uh, your your Wayunes and your other Cardassians don't seem to. Wayun is a uh, is a bit worried about his post war situation. I've worked in the private sector. They expect results. Wayun takes great umbrage with the idea of Change Leader promising a bunch of post war 
territory to the brain. Yeah. Uh, but Wei Yun's got nothing to worry about because change leader's just lying. <laughs> just lying through her flaky teeth to, yeah. to get Thought Prawn on the same page with her. Change leader has eaten a kale salad, and now everything she says is spoken through pretty flaky teeth. Yeah. Have the founders tried floss to fix their disease? If you're a changeling, can you just floss through your entire head? I mean, you just, you're never going to reach gum if you're a changeling. We never got to peak party trick with Odo, you know? No. Like, he did a couple of things to show off. He did longhand that one time, and that was it. Yeah. I'm physically unable to play any game that goes like, how long can you make it? (laughs) That's just not a game I'm ever going to be good at. (laughs) Uh, Legate Broca comes in, and somebody has spilled some tea that Damar may be alive and on Cardassia Prime. He may be alive. Is this possible? Not just on Cardassia Prime, but here in the capital. And... uh, this, this prompts Change Leader to um, cite the title of one of the worst Elmore Leonard novels, Get Damar. And we smash cut right on over to these Cardassian streets where uh, the fucking Jem'Hadar cops are just hassling Garrick and Damar yeah. uh, about some bullshit. Your papers, please. Ajab is what everyone's thinking <laughs> when we see this scene play out. Yeah. But uh, what the cops don't expect is Kira rolling up in a Breen suit and uh, and gadding them both. Yeah, giving me real uh, Princess Leia in Star Wars 3 vibes. Or uh, Dead President's vibes I kind of got. Oh, sure. Know. Yeah. This scene, I was thinking a lot about Cardassia Prime. How did we not ever call it Cardi A? <laughs> We know about know. Cardi B. This is Cardi A. Got it. This is the last episode we're going to talk about Deep Space Nine. We're coming up with Cardi A now? What the fuck is wrong with us? I want to turn the pod car around and uh, and start over about uh, about season three, yeah. maybe? Should we is George Lucas pick that up? this podcast and change things in past episodes? So Kira flips up her the, the face mask to her brain suit and her face looks like the hand from Mr. Deeds. Oh my god. It is totally frosted <laughs> from being in there. Yeah. Uh, it's destroyed something beautiful. I mean there are costs to repping Breen. Yeah. You know? It's true. <laughs> so Kira having successfully saved their asses has made possible a meeting which we don't see to take place. Instead, we get an elliptical edit to after this meeting where we learn about all the allies they've gathered who are ready to sabotage all of the sensitive areas on Cardassia. These are civilians who are ready to uh, throw their their sabot into the power stations and the uh, other sensitive parts of the planet. Hence the word sabotage. It's pretty exciting. I mean, it's a a bit of a win for these guys who in the last episode saw every single military element of the Cardassian resistance get crushed but um, right. but it seems like the the people are are ready to rise up uh, for for the first time in Cardassian history it would seem and Demar uh, has brokered this deal so uh, we're looking forward to it back with the armada uh, the defiance feeling a little sluggish yeah. At speed. You know, sometimes 
when you're on a road trip, you can kind of feel uh, when one of your wheels is out of balance. There's a little bit of a vibration right. in the steering. And O'Brien just cannot brook this kind of of engineering yeah. well, it's, on it, the ship. He's got to fix it. I think it's one of those things like when it, with a new car, you're not supposed to like really push the engine for the first however many number of miles. You got to break it in. Um, so they're, they're doing a lot of like on the fly, like EPS diagnostic kind of techno babble, getting things fixed up. And uh, while they're doing this, we just kind of cut around the bridge and ke- catch up with people. Esri... And Worf have a little catch up about it's cool that I'm fucking Bashir now, right? I mean, you've been telling me to to fuck Bashir for episodes and episodes now. Are you are you actually cool with it? I am going to kill him. For Bashir to have to follow Worf is like throwing a toothpick into a volcano, right? <laughs> There's just it's like it's like throwing a toothpick into two volcanoes, probably. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder how it works. The mechanics boggle the mind. Ben, did they change how the bridge of this class of starship is laid out now? Because I don't remember this kind of foreground, background composition being possible on the earlier version of the Defiant. Like, all of the moments of this scene are very clearly, like, foreground, background, two shots with Ezri and Worf, and then we get another one with O'Brien and Bashir and his ass-eating grin. <laughs> and, like, I just don't remember this being possible a season ago. Yeah, I I guess it's been a while since we've been on this bridge, so I don't remember, but it, it, uh, it did seem a little bit more dynamic. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that they added the Defiant to the show for that reason. They felt like if they were going to go out and do adventures that the bridges of the runabouts just didn't offer enough visual interest, basically. No Star Trek series has ever hated its primary location more than Deep Space Nine <laughs> hated ops, right? Like, <laughs> this show fucking hates ops. Ops is not really in this episode. Like, we don't go to no. Cisco's office, we don't go to ops. It's like, <laughs> fuck that place. We, we, we got one cool shot of it in the last episode and we're done. Yeah. Another uh, little vignette here in this scene is uh, is that Bashir is offering to move the Alamo model from O'Brien's quarters to his, which is uh, pretty a pretty adventurous move on his part. I mean, I'd say that's new relationship on hard mode, right? Like you just start seeing a woman and you're like, hey, by the way, uh, my living room is going to have a giant model train set in it going forward. You know what, though? He's fucking smart because he's trying to get in before the grandfathered in door closes, Mm -hmm. right? Like, he can't introduce Alamo playset in another month. He's got to do it now. He's got, yeah, yeah. Like, within 48 hours of the first first coitus is when you you have to really make that stuff known. As soon as the ship disembarked, he got an orderly to to move the Alamo <laughs> into his apartment. Yeah. It's, it's cool. It's cool. Maybe we'll spend more time at your place. That's fine with me. This is a scene where Cisco has his first profit vision of the episode. I feel like the uh, the profits are a lot more direct now. The profits tell Cisco that this is the last episode of Deep Space Nine. The emissary's task is nearing completion. In so many words. Yeah. They say, there may be some tempting writer's room stuff in a documentary 20 years from now. Don't let that fool you. This is it. 
right like this is this is still pretty vague but like this is this is begins a process over the course of this episode where the prophets converge on just saying exactly what they mean finally well i mean they're they're counting the time code here too yeah they give us a sense of how important the conquest of cardassia is going to be to the overall arc of the story uh spoiler alert not very <laughs> and and cisco comes back and and he comes back and odo is like hey man what's going on with you <laughs> I wish one time in this series they had shown us what it looks like for somebody else to be doing profit vision. It would have been so great if we just stay on Odo. We don't even go with Cisco to the vision. Yeah. Odo's like, hey, hey, wake up. You're, we're about to be in a battle. You need to be with it, man. What the? F- yeah, what the fuck? Hey, can somebody relieve him of duty? Oh, my God. The embarrassing part of any profit vision is the loss of bladder control. <laughs> I'm surprised it didn't come up sooner. I don't need the bucket anymore, but you do. Because when you exist out of time, embarrassment really isn't part of the equation, right? Yeah. You're, you're both embarrassed and pre-embarrassed at the same time. <laughs> yeah. The only thing that's linear is the stream of pee. The prophets see all, Ben, but uh, up until now, in the short term, Golducat has seen nothing. Yeah. But uh, when he walks back into Kaiwin's office, his sight has been restored. Yeah. And uh, he's walked in on Kaiwin finishing her studies of the Coast Emojin. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, the Coast Emojin Cliff's Notes being conspicuously <laughs> uh, tucked into a desk drawer yeah. in this scene. Yeah. She's, uh, she's just cramming as hard as she can for her final presentation. The opening line of which is, Merriam-Webster's defines evil as... <laughs> the episode really goes on a tangent because Kai Wynn goes to the local Bajoran video store and tries to rent the movie version of Coast Emojin, <laughs> and it's already been rented out. Yeah. So what she does is like she kind of sneaks onto the computer and sees who rented it last. Yeah. And then it sets up this entire scene where she... Sitting on the couch of this strange family trying to share popcorn with them yeah totally oblivious to what an imposition kaiwin is is uh, putting on them as if kaiwin could even could be even more irritating than she already was <laughs> yeah it's just very hard to follow with all the talking kaiwin not exactly angry to see gold ducat she needs him to go to the fire caves with her uh and this is presented as more of a business decision than than a social outing at this point. She still gets the skin crawlies whenever she thinks about yeah. all the ways that she's banged him <laughs> uh, previously. It, yeah, it's interesting. Like she's she's like ready to welcome him back, but also not ready to ever forgive him. And he's like, hey, how come you haven't unleashed evil yet? As soon as my eyes were open and my sight was restored, I sort of expected to see a lot of evil. <laughs> <laughs> on these Missouri streets, yeah. and uh, what are you waiting for? <laughs> I was waiting for you. So, uh, so they vow to go to the fire caves and let the coast emotion and all of the pares out of jail. What are you doing now? Exactly. 
this is a very familiar sort of conflict that Kaiwin and Gul Dukat are having. Like, he's the guy on the family trip trying to make the world's biggest Dixie Cup sound like a good time. <laughs> and she is just in the back of the station wagon asking if they're there yet. She's she's not up for this, clearly. Like, the physicality of it, I mean. Yeah. I mean, I, you, you don't want to go hiking in your, in your vestments, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, her train is getting super dirty. Yeah, she like her her official Kai uh, footwear doesn't have a vibram sole. There's not a heavy lug <laughs> on the Kai's footwear, that's for sure. Yeah. The conflict of who is leading the tour is mirrored on Cardassia, where the question of who is going to lead the offense for the Dominion is being adjudicated here. The Breen want to share the lead with the Jem'Hadar. Yeah. And Change Leader is is willing to entertain this possibility. It's touchy, right? And, and interesting that it is, because what we've learned about the Jem'Hadar is that, that on kind of a genetic level, they have loyalty built into them. And that's not infallible. Like, we've seen mm-hmm. defector Jem'Hadar. But the majority of Jem'Hadar do seem to be kind of, like, blindly loyal to the Founders, and there's an issue that is anticipated here that if we put the Breen in charge of them, there, there may be a, a morale problem for the Jem'Hadar. That seems to be a callback way back to that episode where we, where we got to hang out with that crashed ship full of Jem'Hadar, yeah. right? Where you really got to experience the, the emotional nature of them in a brand new way. Totally. The big thing that they want to do is send some reinforcements to the middle of their lines— because the perimeter that they're making to defend against the unrushing fleet is uh, a little bit patchy there. But before they can do that, the power cuts. Hence. What Wayun describes is that almost every military installation on Cartier has been knocked out. Sabo are getting thrown in every single gear. The word. It's like everyone counts down and then throws their Sabo at the same time. Yeah, yeah. It's like New Year's Eve, but for Sabo. Sabotage. It's great momentarily until we learn that the reaction will be punishment to the people. Yeah. The, the retribution will be brought down on civilians. And Leggett Broca is like, cool, doesn't matter to me. I'm just in this for the power. He sees himself separate from Cardassia. Like he, it's almost like he doesn't even view himself as Cardassian in this context. Yeah. And by saying that, I mean he doesn't view himself as subject to this sort of punishment. Right. I mean, and why would he be? He's he's in with the founder. He's really the Burke of this yeah. story, right? Yeah, totally. Don't you have any idea what you've done here? What we learn in the basement on Cardassia with Kira Garrick and Damar is that this this coordinated power outage gives them 24 minutes to work, and that's not a lot of time. The power has been cut, but uh, the TV hasn't been knocked out. When they <laughs> when they turn it on, they find Wei Yun there waiting for him and Kira's like turn it up turn it up yeah I should have killed that vorted jackal when I had the chance when they do they realize the consequences of this coordinated effort the dominion have vaporized a city in response so two million dead yeah Lacarian is gone and uh, apparently the final words of the city fathers were it's fun to do bad things <laughs> 
I mean, who knows if they were warned in such a way that gave them any time to smoke real cigarettes. <laughs> Uh, we'll never know. Um, everybody is Lacarian strong on Cardassia now. Right. And Fidel Damar is ready to lead them. I love this scene is unintentionally funny because Wayun's on the screen saying this awful shit about the extermination of a city and the camera moves in on him <laughs> yeah. in something that is way past an ECU. Yeah. Like it basically cuts around his eyes and his mouth. Yeah. That's how ECU it is. Yeah. It's E E C U. Right. It's it's the it's the long push in too, right? Like the it starts yeah. in a head and shoulders single of Wayun explaining that this city has been raised and by the end of it it's it's close, but it hasn't cut. It's just it's just a slow push in and like I love the idea of like the TV news cameraman that they brought in to the fucking headquarters yeah. of the Dominion on Cartier and said just like, okay, this is just like a, an announcement of some uh, important information for the populace. And what we, it's, it's, a, it's a 30 second announcement. We want you to start on the wide and be as tight as you can possibly be on his face without, you know, cutting off his eyes or his mouth by the end. <laughs> I love that we, that we think of stuff like this because, like, I had a job where I was shooting a live event where, like, the big event happens and then we cut into the interview room and I was the interview room camera uh -huh. and you start with your two shot and you move in on your single yeah. uh, after the interviewer asks the question. Right. And every once in a while, like, in your ear, the producer will be like, uh, mind your headroom because that's what a producer says. I love the idea of a cam op, like <laughs> totally freelancing this and seeing the drama of the situation and going in further and further. And a producer just like screaming in that cam op's ear, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah. I wonder if they had to bring in a Breen or a Jem'Hadar op because they knew that the news would be really upsetting if it was a Cardassian cam op. Or... I counter argument it was a Cardassian cam op and he was like well I'm gonna fuck this guy's frame up if he's gonna kill two million of my brethren cam ops have a lot of power in situations <laughs> like these <laughs> I love that in either case neither of them uh, would be qualified for that job like the Jem'Hadar was hatched out of a, like a bog to go to war he doesn't have any idea what a zoom ring does right yeah <laughs> He's totally fucked up. <laughs> and so does a Cardassian. Yeah. So the plan in the basement at this point is to attack Dominion HQ directly. What else can they do? Yeah. They say uh, chop off the snake's head and the rest of the body will die, which is also true of all other kinds of animals. Yeah, like... Uh, what they don't do is that Star Trek thing of of describing that three-word animal, like, mm -hmm. uh, where are the animals from, quality of animal, name of animal, right. like that yeah. way of Star Trek yeah. speaking. Like, oh. Yeah, that that would be true, except for the... <laughs> the Temerian the, rage bison would never die if you cut its head off. The headless Temerian rage bison <laughs> may be even more dangerous. <laughs> We're going to need some kind of explosives. I'll get right on it. Yeah, so they, they vow Rewenge. It means... Omata. And that's, I mean, like, what a, good, what a great motivation for, for right. Fidel Damar to be riding, riding to war with. On the defiant, Martok, Belt Buckle, and Cisco attempt to do a three-way call merge. Mm -hmm. And Cisco begins with just talking to Martok. Right. And then he's like, all right, Martok, just give me a second. I'm going to 
I'm going to merge belt buckle in, but then like doesn't hit the button to do it. Yeah. And so there's that pregnancy of the moment where it's just the two of them wondering where belt buckle is. And they, they do that thing where like, do we have all three? No. Oh, okay. No. Let me try again. I, I'm not sure if I hit it. And then, and then you're, you hit it and you're like, was there a delay or did it not yeah. register that I tapped it? It's almost as awkward as talking about drinking a barrel of blood wine <laughs> as if Admiral Beltbuckle isn't the Fraser Crane of the group and would prefer to drink sherry over the uh, bodies of the vanquished. Mm, yeah. Should they get that opportunity? Yeah. The, uh, the field of victory, uh, something nice to look forward to. They're kind of the secreting this battle in a way. <laughs> I could not get enough of what this was selling me. Yeah. I want to see a space battle that's 20 minutes long. I mean, we get a lot of space battle and a lot. I mean, this is this is CG starship stuff, so they they can go a lot crazier with it than they did right. in TNG. They're not just dropping a Lego Millennium Falcon uh, onto another Millennium Falcon. Right. Like, this is when you're digitized, you can do a lot of things. You can do a lot of things, and and to their credit, they didn't just rest on their CG laurels, like. There are, is there are an impressive number of cuts to the interior of these ships that are getting blown up and like right. girders and practical explosion effects and stuff and and they're very inventive shots like I love the snorry cam like over the over the top of the little D shot where they they do a loop the loop and yeah. and take out a Gemini ship that was great Ben what's in the saucer of a galaxy class ship on a mission like this is it empty. Why didn't they show a saucer-separated galaxy class? Can we see the battle bridge? No, I'm afraid not. Just just to have two points of uh, of fire, you know? Yeah. Like the saucer I mean, licking its own shots and the and the star drive second section licking its own shots. That would have been cool. It's such a tension between all of the feels that you get seeing a galaxy class ship in this context. Yeah. And all of the contextual knowledge that you have about why this shouldn't be possible. Right. And and it's a show that chooses the former over the latter. Like, I want to feel something seeing a bunch of Enterprise D looking ships doing something like this. And it's okay if it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I can get with that. Yeah. You think about the families on those ships, whether they... Yeah knowingly signed up for this war i mean you see that hood class ship with its saucer all ripped apart like all of the whippets just like <laughs> venting into space <laughs> the bouncy castle explodes on contact with the vacuum so sad it's comfortable showing us hood class violence but uh but it doesn't show us any more galaxy class losses the way we got a couple of seasons ago you know yeah which always feels important, you know. They, they. Yeah. I feel like they really knew not to overuse blowing up a galaxy class, and blowing one up in this scene, I think, would have been appropriate. I think so too. Because we're talking about a third of our fleet has been decimated by the end of this scene. Yeah, it does not appear that the galaxy class is part of that third. <laughs> no. We cut around a lot. We cut back to Cardi A, where in the cellar, uh, the housekeeper lady gets a visit from a couple of 
Cardassians and a couple of Jim Hadars who are, I guess, just kind of going door to door inspecting for Damar problems. And they want to come down and like look around in the cellar. Garrick and, and everyone have to like put their bomb making equipment away and, and hide under the stairs. It's scary as hell because this this Jem Hadar interlocutor is so intimidating. Like he sits Mila down and like fills a giant tobacco pipe <laughs> and does this scene that that the rest of the resistance has to watch through the floorboards of the basement. Right. And the tension of it is just exquisite. May I help you? Would you confirm for me the exact members of the household and their names? Mila gets a really fun scene of crawling up Garrick's ass about not eating enough before this. <laughs> and so when she goes upstairs, like, like that's intentional, right? Like, we don't know Mila hardly at all, except through what Garrick has told us about her and these few scenes of her taking care of the group. But man, when she answers the door with that kind of fear, it sucks. It yeah. sucks to see that because you have every reason to like her and every reason to fear for her. She's got like just that little like implication toward maternal energy makes it really yeah. painful when she gets pushed down the stairs. And that she's sweet on Damar and that you get this side of Damar that you never see before, like the flirtatious Damar. Uh-huh. <laughs> I love every scene between Damar and Mila because of that <laughs> kind of like sweetness there that you just don't get in any other moment. We made fun of Damar earlier for being kind of a philanderer, but it's it's very clear that he just loves women, man. Platonic philandering is super fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess Mila in uh, in the context of a guerrilla war to take back their planet as sort of his work wife. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and that's okay. Yeah, but uh, it's unfortunate that uh, the the Cardassians above don't just push Mila down the stairs. They also push a couple of grenades down there too for good measure. Yeah. Not the kind of grenades that would kill you if you're standing directly next to them as we learn, but No, they're the kind of uh, they're the kind of stun grenades that uh, are meant to take back your enemies alive. Yeah. And so while the battle rages in space, while Bashir like patches up holes in O'Brien's body, while O'Brien stays at the at the controls and and keeps working the starship. Hey man, that's his kayaking shoulder. <laughs> while change leader and uh and Wayun argue over the fact that they're not able to communicate with this fleet because long distance communications are still out. Uh, the Jemadar begin their interrogation of Damar and Garrick and Kira. And uh, what they decide is we're just going to summarily execute you here in this cellar. I've got to feel like the classic version of Cardassian execution is the version of a guillotine that's like a silverware drawer, right? <laughs> like construct what that looks like in your mind. <laughs> That's that like you set that up in the town square. Yeah, yeah. Many centuries ago, and that's how they did it on Cardassia. Yeah, and Garrick is like, "Oh, you're just gonna shoot us? Wow!" This is the thing, man. Because when your orders are to execute prisoners, you want if you're the Jem Hadar, you want your Cardassians to, to stand in front of you. Yeah, and they make the fatal mistake of allowing them to be behind, yeah. and that's what ends up saving the group's life. The Cardassians shoot the Jem'Hadars, and they take off their chest plates, and they've got Lacarian Strong t-shirts on underneath. 
Yeah, it's big fun. They're going to be okay. I mean, at least for now. And and meanwhile, up in the space battle, the Cardassian starships are kind of pulling the same move, right? They, too, right. are standing behind the ticks. They, too, are, in fact, Lacarian strong. It's big fun when they start shooting the ticks. And uh, it's a triumphant moment. Yeah. Once we get the realization of this. The timing couldn't be better. It's the exact opposite feeling on, on Cardassia when they restore comms and everyone in Dominion HQ realizes the side switching that's happened in orbit. I want the Cardassians exterminated. Another moment where I was looking at the Cardassians in the room and I was like, they should uh, like run or pull their guns yeah. out and you know try and save themselves or something. Broca... Maybe one of the dumbest characters in all of Deep Space Nine. Yeah. I won't miss him. He's got real, like, the last person to join the Trump cabinet vibes, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. He gets what's coming to him, and Ch- Change Leader gets uh, real angry when she learns that the that their defense perimeter has been crushed and it's Cardassian betrayal at fault. She goes full Kevin, Adam. When genocide is on the table, you really have to think of the next step, and I don't think she's fully thought that through. Let me give you some advice, change leader. <laughs> you you can't come back from one of these, you know. It's gonna it's gonna be with you for the rest of your life. But if you're gonna do it, you want there to be Cardassians one moment and zero Cardassians the next. Otherwise, it's it's not gonna work. The only thing that got me through my own personal genocide <laughs> was the thought of that one acre by one acre square <laughs> of Malibu beachfront property waiting for me and my beloved wife, Rashan. The cup of tea that I knew she'd have waiting for me when I recreated her and, and returned home after my instant of war. I've raked piles of leaves bigger than you, change leader. (laughs) Recoil from my judgment. You're lucky you're not a hoosnack, I'll put it that way. You imagine yourself to be a god, and I find that laughable. On the Defiant, uh, everyone is psyched about the Dominion pullback. Thank God for the Cardassians. The day is ours. And it it really introduces the question. This is a a repetition of a type of question that they faced over the last few episodes. Are they satisfied with having won this battle, or do they keep moving ahead in order to end the war? Right. Do do they take their loss of one-third of their ships, or do they say, we got to press the advantage and finish this thing off once and for all? When you play poker against someone for whom genocide (laughs) is the stakes, you better be ready to go all in. (laughs) Adam, what gets a Klingon more pumped than the prospect of songs being sung about this day? That's it. That's at the top of the mountain. If you're gonna, if if you if you think that you're having a day that songs might one day be sung about, that's about as good a feeling as you can have, and that's what Martok is is pushing here. Yeah, I love that he has the song confidence. <laughs> you know, to to present this in a straight face to people who don't have the same feelings. Yeah. W slash R slash D the songs. He's, he's like. 
Malota. People will ask, what is that? I've never heard of that song. I always sing Cardassia myself. People love my spoken word rendition <laughs> of Rocket Man. <laughs> <laughs> so they agree. They put it to a vote. The Romulans don't get a vote this time. But uh, I guess the Romulan flagship has been knocked out at this point. So maybe that's why. Hey, I low-key do not think it's right that that the Romulan part of their alliance is not involved in any of the strategy here. Yeah. Like, this should be a four-way call, and it's a three-way call, mm. and I think it fucks over the Romulans big time. <laughs> yeah. Is it any wonder they don't trust the Federation? In any alliance, communication is the core. I mean, maybe they're just afraid of the Romulans' rage issues. <laughs> <laughs> The Romulan doesn't agree with them and loses the vote. I mean, it's like, yeah. what is he going to do? Go on Twitter? So back at the fire caves, uh, Gulducat rightly asks the question on all of our minds. Well, this may sound naive, but I was expecting to see fire. These just look like regular Star Trek caves. What gives? Seeing joy on Kaiwin's face is maybe the most threatening ex- expression that you could experience. As an outsider. Yeah. Kai Wynn's smile in this moment is the kind of expression you'd see on Mitch McConnell while he watches a family freeze to death in a car they've been living in. And with good reason. The, uh, oh, you naive little pip kind of expression on her face. Very, very, very scary. She opens her her big book and starts kind of incanting Pa-Wraith nonsense and... uh, what you don't get in the scenes up until here is how f- much of a pain in the ass it's got to be to carry that goddamn book through the caves for hours at a time, right? No wonder she was so tired. I mean, her clothes yeah. are all wrong, and also she's schlepping this book. A leather-bound book, which you know is just getting sweaty in your palms the entire time. Yeah, ugh. It's gross as hell. The, like, if if there is, like, an archivist or some kind of, like, you know, old book conservator back in... Uh, in the Kai's mansion, they're going to be so pissed off when they see the condition that the Necropomicon comes back in. This is the case to be made for the Cliff's Notes Coast Emojin. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You just stick that thing in your back pocket or in a fold of your vestments and you're good to go. Yeah. Hey, guess what, Ben? The Cliff's Notes version of the Coast Emojin, probably not going to blind anyone no. to look at. Yeah. Pretty safe to, to leave about the office. Yeah. And if you're. And if your professor hasn't read the kind of like prepackaged observations about what the meaning of the scene in question is, like you might actually come across as having read the material when you talk about it in class. Right, exactly. Anyways, uh, uh, the the paw wraiths show up. It gets pretty hot in her, so Kaiwin uh, takes off her vestments. Is that better? And then uh, lays one on. Gul Dukat, right on the kisser before reading from the book again. Yeah. And uh, as, the, as, they, as they embrace, a, uh, a beloved recurring character shows up and says, Hey, I'm the evil version of that tablet from a couple episodes ago. Welcome to the fire caves. I see you're waving my book over your head. <laughs> Pretty dangerous if you ask me. With all this fire around, an old dry book like that is a veritable tinderbox. Safety first, am I right? I was shocked 
that Kai Wynn kissed Gal Dukat here. Yeah. This is emblematic of how unhinged she's become. She will really do anything, and uh, they seem very, very happy in uh, the fact that they're about to unleash evil on the universe. The challenge on Cardassia is that the rebels don't know how to get into Dominion HQ, and they're kind of chasing... The clock is chasing them because the extermination is kind of underway at this point. Right. There's bangers being dropped on the cellar. Garrick is talking about, you know, I thought I might like retire in this house, but mm-hmm. now it's going to be a heap of rubble by tomorrow. Demar gestures to uh, to Mila at the bottom of the stairs. I thought that might be going somewhere. Oh, well. <laughs> Nothing's going to motivate Garrick more than Rowenge. So they're going to head to the HQ where the Dominion war effort is being run out of and uh, they've built a bunch of bombs. We're given some context for what the remaining capacity to wage war is because uh, we cut to orbit where just a devastatingly huge armada of Jemadar ships and Breen ships and those like orbital uh, defense platforms that we saw several episodes ago are are waiting for this uh onrushing federation and allies fleet i love the sense of scale that we get here because like you can barely even see the ticks it's all super ticks yeah ben i'm digging into my broad right now and i really wish that you had some i'm getting hammered wow fuck man i've only had like two glasses of wine here when consumed properly as sir edmund mailbar once wrote it can elevate the soul. Take it to the dome, Ben. All right, all right. I mean, it'd be a shame to let this lovely bottle go to waste. Maybe I'll get some bros. Maybe I should run and grab some. Hey, run and grab some, and uh, I'll take the show from here. Okay, I'll be right back. Will do. The thing about the situation outside of Dominion HQ is the blast doors are made of a substance that the bombs will have no effect on. And so Garrick and Kira start laughing at the absurdity of this predicament, and everyone joins in in a way that made me think that they were being gassed. What'd I miss? Uh, I took the viewers to the point where the rebels were outside the gates and they were laughing about... Uh, their bombs not being a good match for the door. Oh, yeah. I don't know what it is about my film-watching history that made me assume that they were being uh, somehow nerve-gassed during this moment because the... Oh, wow. I think this scene works for a type of person who can see the absurdity of the moment and appreciate it and, like, enjoy the levity of uh, the moments before a hopeless battle. But I had thought that maybe, like, the oxygen, like, a way of killing everyone on, on Cardassia is, is removing the oxygen from the surface of the planet, and they were slowly being suffocated or something. Yeah. I did, not, I did not see this as contextual humor in the way that they might have meant it. I think that what maybe took you there was that Damar gets in on the fun. Yeah, and he's not fun. And he's been such a humorless character yeah like up to this moment like it i it might be the first time we see him smile in the entire series do you think he banged one out with mila before this scene and like that's what's loosened him up a little bit yeah no wonder he was so uptight he was so pent up yeah what we're learning at this moment is not just that 
the rebels outside the wall may not be able to get in. It's just, it's also how few people are left inside Dominion HQ to defend because right. the Breen at this point are leaving to go fight in space. And this is a scene that's like maybe the last best dick kicking that change leader is going to give way right uh on her way to the grave but like we're starting to understand that there's really not a lot of people left at this point yeah it's kind of crazy to think that the seat of government would be just kind of left with a few like ultra loyal lackeys that yeah. are like barely competent to execute the awesome power of the office that they <laughs> occupy I always thought it was suspicious that Broca took some rebels on a tour of Dominion HQ in the days before this, right. just to sort of give them a lay of the land. Right. Why would Broca do that? It's like he's seen what they're posting on the internet, you know. Right. He knows what they stand for. Why? Exactly. Wh what is this other than giving them an opportunity to make a, a plan for what to do with their flex cuffs? And this is the fatal flaw, this moment where where Broca needs to be executed. They don't think to do that inside the walls. They take him outside like so much trash. Yeah. And with those doors open, that is the opening that the rebels need to storm in. And it is in this storm that Damar is shot and yeah. is killed. Killed by one of those really painful Jem'Hadar weapons too, right? Like... Yeah, I feel like the uh, the death of Demar is particularly brutal feeling. Remember his orders. We stop for nothing. What a great job Casey Biggs did as Demar, and the journey that his character took up until this point. Yeah. It seemed extremely unlikely a couple of seasons ago that we would have given a shit about the death of Demar, and I think it's a credit to him and how his character was written that that there are some legitimate feels in this moment. I think uh, it's a great moment in the series. Yeah, uh, a truly awesome achievement. And, and I think part of the achievement is in the people making decisions about what is going to happen on the show writ large saying like, wow, like that guy, like we brought in to just be kind of like a bootlicking lackey for Ducat, but he did a really great job. Like let's, like, let's take that character and see where it can go. And, like, letting your imagination fill out a, a character like that, like, lets it go, lets his character go on a really interesting journey. It's got to be so exciting to both be a casting agent and to, like, fit the right person into the right role and then be satisfied that you've done a good job, but also to see them take that ride of they were cast as a thing and they get, and then they get like double discovered, right? Totally. Like Casey Biggs got off the bus on the deep space nine lot and was discovered and was turned into Damar, but then he was turned into this Damar after that. Yeah. Yeah. There was a second bus <laughs> inside the lot that he got off again. <laughs> <laughs> that got us here. Yeah. Two buses. Double bus Demar. That's what they call yeah. him. Pretty great moment for being as sad as it is. And and it's Garrick that takes point from here on out. Yeah. And uh, you know he's up for this. So they firefight their way through HQ and make it to the Holy of Holies where they get change leader and Wei Yun at phaser point. 
and are basically saying like call off your ships or we'll shoot you it's a pretty big moment change leader's not going to call off her ships it's a fun moment when change leader says no and garrick just shoots Wayun. <laughs> <laughs> like do you feel like changing your mind now yeah and she's like you idiot if you shoot me i'm gonna explode and everybody in here is gonna die <laughs> change leader's like you have no idea what sort of favor you did for me. That guy <laughs> fucking sucked, and I hated him. Yeah. Wei Yoon, he only made it to eight. Sad. Yeah, yeah but uh, he only made it that far, but Jeffrey Combs uh, made it so much further into our hearts yeah. in the process. Yeah. Just, uh, like, this is the moment of the series where you're like, uh, that's a wrap for Jeffrey Combs, yeah. everyone. Yeah. And uh, if you're a fan of The Greatest Generation, this is the moment where you uh, you give him a standing ovation. Totally. Just, just The Greatest Work Here by Jeffrey Combs. I wish you hadn't done that. That was Wayun's last clone. So, yeah, they're, they're trying to make the case to Change Leader like the... Uh, like, this is it. We're here with the gun at your head and, it, like, you can end the war here and now and you should... And she turns this into a threat. Like, the, we're not ending the war. Like, this this was an all or nothing for us. And, like, any further advancement you make will come at the cost of 100% of the potential it could cost you. And what I'm telling you is you winning will taste as bitter as radicchio. I mean, defeat. Radicchio. You know, the thing I'm somehow able to make appear on my body. <laughs> yeah, she does look like the beginnings of a delightful salad, doesn't she, Adam? It's a terrifying thing to consider, this idea that, that you may feel like you're doing the right thing, but the, but the punishment coming back at you yeah. is going to be so costly. Right. It may even mean your cancellation. Yeah, it's scary. And this is tough. This is a thing that Kira communicates to, up to the Defiant. Like, What's your status? John Doe has the upper hand. This founder we have down here doesn't seem particularly interested in drawing down the offenses of the fleet. And if, if Change Leader doesn't do that, what she promises is going to come true. And Odo sees this as an opportunity. Maybe Odo can talk some sense into her. I'm legendarily good at diplomacy. Let me talk to her. I'm a people person. People <laughs> like me. That's the main thing about me. Odo. <laughs> you don't want customers talking directly to engineers. They don't have people skills like I do. Odo beams down and Kira's like, watch your back, Jack. <laughs> and so Kira, Kira and Garrett kind of watch Odo have this interaction with Change Leader. And Change Leader, true to her nature, is not going to capitulate. And what's interesting about this moment is that she gives voice to the reason a little bit better than she did before. She doesn't want her weakness in this moment to be an invitation to the destruction of the Great Link, which is just like sitting there as a fetid pool waiting to be destroyed. Right. She's like, I, I can be strong now, as a deterrent for you destroying my people. And if I'm weak here, uh, nothing's going to stop you from dropping a couple of grenades <laughs> into, into that pool and blowing up my spot. Yeah. And Garrick here is fantastic because he would rather shoot Odo than allow him 
to link with Change Leader, yeah. and it's Kira that tells Garrick to stand down. But this is so. This moment is so fraught, Ben, because Odo's freelancing. Like he's not doing what they agreed that they were all going to do. Yeah. And I feel like deep down, Garrick is willing to shoot everyone in this room. I'm warning you, Odo. And astonishingly, Kira is willing to watch Odo link with another woman. Odo cucks Kira here super hard. Yeah. It's messed up. The last indignity for Colonel Kira as a character. Yeah. Odo presents himself as a cure for the leafy greens that uh, <laughs> Change Leader is suffering from. And like I feel like we predicted an episode or two ago, linking is the cure. Yeah. And once she's cured, Change Leader is, is willing to stand down her fleet. Her whole her whole like demeanor changes when they come yeah. out of that. It's very interesting. Like like she is healthier and also more rational. One of the things that we learn about linking is that it is such a fast forwarding of any conversation or agreement that you can have. Right. You exchange so much information in that moment that when change leader is all of a sudden willing to stand down the fleet and stand trial and accept the consequences for what she's done. I wanted to Odo know is what... also yeah. ready to go to the Great Link to cure his people and is choosing jumping into the pool over his relationship with Kira. Like this happens instantaneously. It's it's kind of the thing we talked about before, like that they sue for peace by saying we will provide the cure yeah. in in that event. And but also like she's gonna stand trial, but like to be deprived of what all transpired between them like when they linked could she tell that he had the capacity to cure her but he was withholding it until she made that agreement i mean like i just want to know like how you deal with somebody that could ruin your life when you know that there's a conflict between you in a way that gets them to kind of see things from your perspective i mean i would give anything to have that kind of insight (laughs) At this moment in time. Yeah. It's it's that ramp in RC Pro-Am that you hit that just like propels your, your story car forward. Yeah. Like ordinarily this, it, between two corporeal characters, this would have taken scenes and scenes to establish, but we're already there. That's like, that's like two episodes that they didn't have to produce at the end of season seven. Right. And on, and outside of the base on the streets of Cardassia, it's uh, it's victory drinks time. Martok drinks with uh, Admiral Beltbuckle and Cisco, who disrespect him royally by pouring out their drinks. I think it's Admiral Beltbuckle who's more relieved to do this than than Ben Cisco. Yeah, uh, who hates the stuff. Yeah, but seriously, like the dude just poured you a drink of what he said was like the finest wine available in all of Kronos history and you're fucking dumping it on the floor, at least offer it back to him. Be like, hey, I'm not in the mood for a drink and I know that this stuff is really special. Uh, What do you want me to do with this? The only person I would ever permit to pour out my finest liquor is my wife. (laughs) (laughs) Part of the rich dance of marriage where she constantly humiliates me in public and I go jack off about it in a corner later. (laughs) (laughs) Plenty of places to jack off on the streets of Cardassia (laughs) where no one is alive to watch me do it. 800 million civilian deaths and I have the place to myself. 
to make a the, toaster strudel of the of the burning streets of this planet. The greatest challenge for me as a warrior <laughs> is to deposit my seed on something that is not a Cardassian corpse. <laughs> Do you think you gotta go two-handed when you're a Klingon, don't you? Oh, pumping on both. There is no European style or American style. <laughs> it's it's both passenger seat and driver seat. Wow. That's that's steering the, the masturbatory car. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah. Klingons never switch sides of the bed. No, they sure don't. After, like, we get a sense of the death in this scene with Martok and Belt Buckle and Cisco, but we get the the statistical analysis in back in the control center where Bashir and Garrick are rapping. Eight hundred million dead, and like they've got a ticker board, like you'd see it in an airport, right? And it's still flapping. The numbers are rocketing up. We haven't gotten a Bashir Garrick scene in ages, and I know that this moment is sort of depending on our nostalgia for that. I wish this was more of a quality of this show than something it forgot a season ago. This this show really chose Bashir O'Brien over Bashir Garrick yeah. a while back, and it didn't need to make that decision. It could have been both. Right, and I think that this scene felt like it was good to have closure on this relationship but I also was like why would Bashir and Garrick be the two people left in the control room of all people yeah, yeah I mean Bashir should be at O'Brien's bedside right. tending to his many wounds <laughs> you know some may say that we've gotten just what we deserved back in the fire caves uh, we've got a lot of action taking place that action includes uh Kai Wynn poisoning Gul Dukat. She gives, she's, uh, she pours a, a chalice of wine. It sort of seems like uh, she's about to do like Bajoran communion or something. <laughs> and uh, when it's hot, it can be nice to break out some chilled wine. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. very refreshing. Lahaim. They pour one out for Solbor. <laughs> that was sweet. Well, she's about to take the first sip, and then she's like, "Nah, you take it." And he uh, he drinks it. And passes her the remainder, which, in a way that mirrors what uh, Cisco and Beltbuckle did to, uh, yeah. <laughs> did to Martok, she pours that one out for the homies, and unlike what Beltbuckle and Cisco did to Martok, Ducat realizes that that wine was poison. Very confusing. That was not the good stuff. Yeah. <laughs> How about Kai Win? Sacrificing Ducat on the altar of the Pa Wraiths. Fucked up. Pretty wild. I offer you this life as nourishment. So the war is over. Yeah, we get an armistice signing on Deep Space Nine at an event at the wardroom. And uh, Bell Buckle speechifies this moment in a way that I feel like is uh, pretty unwelcome. He's like citing earlier people who were accepting unconditional surrenders from from their defeated ad- adversaries and uh change leader clearly humiliated and you know ready to go stand trial for her war crimes uh hands off the articles of surrender which are in a like plastic laminate like a book report that you turn in in ninth grade with that uh that fun plastic like binding yeah that, that clip you have to slide over <laughs> yeah 
It's always so satisfying to nail that. Yeah. There are 30 minutes left in this episode. I couldn't believe that. And I was that. shocked by that. Yeah. When I when I hit pause and I checked the time code, I was like, what are we going to do for the next half an hour? Find out how quickly Ducat's body burns up in that yeah. cave? The first thing we find out is that Worf is going to become a diplomat. I am not a diplomat. Right. We get a lot of goodbyes. Yeah. We get Esri and Worf talking about a party that's going to happen later on at Vix. Yeah. And uh, one of the things they argue about isn't why she's wearing her comm badge, like right on her uniform line for <laughs> some reason. He's like, no, do, do more like Cal Hudson would. You know, putting your comm badge low gives you another six inches of camera height. <laughs> Cisco and Martok and uh, Belt Buckle uh, appear to make an offer to Worf. Yeah. Be the Federation ambassador to Kronosh. Yeah. Uh, he initially refuses by saying the obvious, that he is not good at diplomacy. He's still picking glass out of his back. Yeah. Uh, but the case is made that, like, Martok is not a politician, but he's now the, the chancellor. Nobody makes the case that wouldn't it be like kind of a weird conflict of interest for the Federation's ambassador to Kronos be in the same house as the chancellor of Kronos? It'd be like yeah, if Ivanka no one... Trump was Russia's ambassador to the United States. It's a great call. And especially like Esri's there watching this happen. And Esri is the one character on the show who's given voice to the strange hypocrisy of Klingon politics. Right. Like, she could, in the moment, call that out, and she doesn't. <laughs> yeah. Congratulations, Worf. Odo and Kira have to break up, Ben. Uh, and Odo is presenting it as a sacrifice worth making to keep her safe. And Kira's all, can I drive? <laughs> because that this is what Odo is saying. He's got to go link up with the Great Link. If we're gonna, uh, this is his destiny. If 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 we're gonna break up, I want to uh, I want to help send you off in style. This has got to be so irritating to O'Brien and Worf, who were planning on the party at Vix being a goodbye party to them. Yeah, you know, for their job choices. Yeah, their future job pursuits. But now it's a three-way goodbye party for O'Brien, Odo, and Worf. It's a real getting engaged at a wedding. You know, it's yeah, like, come it on, totally is. what the hell are you doing? Stealing the thunder of our cool party. We get a very long Vic Fontaine song singing The Way You Look Tonight. We get some very long, we get long lingering camera passes of our of our favorite characters yeah. during this scene. Quark even enjoying himself. Cassidy is not too sick to attend the party, <laughs> notably. Uh, she's yeah. at the bar even. I mean, it's morning sickness, right? Yeah. Does she have she must be drinking a synthahol uh martini there. She's drinking the uh the sparkling cider mm. at the party. <laughs> and uh that is the end of the episode, Ben. Oh shit. What? There is a sea story to <laughs> to wrap up, isn't there? That was the feeling that I had at the end of the scene was like, oh, there's still cave stuff happening. Yeah, yeah. Because it has been a long-ass time since we've been in the cave. I feel like that cave, we went, we went away from it 10 minutes ago in episode time, and it's time to go right. back. And it's like, 
when we go back, it's like, how much time has transpired here? Like, have you guys been in this cave for a week or have you guys been doing incantations over the book for hours? Not even you guys. It's just Kai Wynn, right? We need some passage of time stuff here. Yeah. Like a beard has begun to form on Galdicott yeah. on his corpse. Even though he's dead, he's grown a beard. <laughs> the, let me tell you something, Ben. The best beard I'll ever grow is this a corpse. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the The idea was that, that Ducat was a sacrifice to the Pa Wraith. And they take her up on this offer, and one of the farts comes over and enters into his chest, and we see his eyes open, and he's got those, like, bright red Jake eyes from, from when Jake went yeah. evil. No! And uh, we cut away and cut back, and Ducat has his loaf back. When he says, my balls, they're back to being scaly. Can you picture it? <laughs> I'm back, baby! At the same time, Cisco's been at Vic Fontaine's, and he has an epiphany. Yeah. He's got to go to the fire caves. He's got to do this alone. There's business yet to be done. And so he does a very enviable thing at any party. He ghosts it. Yeah. He gives it the old prophet goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) The only person he explains himself to is a significant other. But even she gets ditched at this party. Yeah. Not even his son gets a I'm outie. Back on the fire caves, Goldicott is gloating at Kai Wen over his new circumstances. Yeah. And it sounds like what's going to happen is a pretty bad time. Like uh, fire and flame everywhere like across the galaxy. It's not going to be good, but uh, enter Ben Sisko from uh, from stage, right? Yeah. He's packing. Yeah. Uh, but what he's packing is no match for the finger guns that Goldicott has. <laughs> and uh, Sisko's fists don't work either. It was like, like just, it really felt like Ripley versus Darth Vader here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's, uh, he's doing like, uh, like, you know, mind tricks where people fly across the room and guns fly out of people's hands. Controls the world with his mind. Kai Wynn, in her own right, attempts to throw the book into the into a fire in a very fun, like, practical camera move where Kai Wynn holds the book over her head, a grip clearly grabs it out of her hands, and then, like, she brings her hands back down empty. I love that moment so much. I know. I for sure would have been the PA that was, they were like, hey, Ben, do you want to grab the book? Yeah. That's Louise Fletcher, famous actor. Do you want to grab the book out of her hands? It makes a ton of sense contextually. Like she's thinking that burning the book is going to fix the problem. But it's it's in that moment that that, uh, Gul Dukat like kind of snaps his fingers. The book's in his hands now. It's just too easy. And Kai Wynn is punished for this moment. Yeah. Uh, She's sentenced to burning alive. It's burning and, uh, alive, but it looks like relatively quick and yeah. painless for burning alive, you know? It seems like an equivalent amount of suffering for what she's done. Yeah. And let's just talk about, like, what a fucking amazing villain Louise Fletcher created in Kai Wen. Like, 
I think a character that we've known for the entire series, basically, and always a really compelling baddie for for this show. She belongs on Mount Villainmore for all of Star Trek. Totally. I think she's up on the mountain. She's yeah. amazing. And that's what makes her death full of mixed feelings to me that I don't think that I would have expected early yeah. on. Like, the greatness of her performance offsets the evilness of character in a way that gives me a sense of, like, grudging respect mm-hmm. for the way she goes out. And that's, that's, I think, how you know you've created a compelling character. If you can fill the viewer with that kind of conflict right. uh, during their death... I think you've done a good job. Like, I think that there is a real, almost Aristotelian catharsis in her, like, not even being the apex bad guy. Like, mm-hmm. there's a point in this episode where she says, like, I'm putting, I'm like, I'm leaving behind years of hypocrisy and embracing the pa wraiths. And it's like, that is true. Like, <laughs> you have been a total hypocrite, like, like, wrapping yourself in the in the clothes of the of the righteous and moral when in fact you are a totally self-serving power hungry bad guy and and then like the humiliation of that character not being the final like like she's trying to become the end boss basically the entire right. series and she can't become the end boss because Ducat's the end boss it is the true end boss that Cisco takes a ride on down into the flames <laughs> Uh, Guldicott holding on to the book is a target yeah. for for Cisco's leap. And so Cisco takes him into the flames where both Guldicott and the book get cooked. And in the moment after Cisco wakes up in that liminal white space of the afterlife, Sarah's there and she gestures behind Ben Cisco to the mission accomplished banner that unfurls. The emissary has completed his task. She's like, you're a prophet now. Yeah, she is uh, as easy to understand as a prophet has ever been on this series. Telling him, right. like speaking in sentences that humans can understand. On Deep Space Nine in the wardroom, Worf and Ezri and, and Dr. Bashir are kind of breaking this news to Cassidy Yates that they have not been able to recover a body from Bajor and the fire caves. And as Odo works on Jake in the same way, the, the feeling is that Ben Sisko is dead. Yeah. And Cassidy can feel it herself. Something bad has happened. And it's in this moment of bad feelings that... Cassidy is pulled into this liminal space and Cisco is there to greet her. It's the celestial temple. Yeah. Ben, he tells her the bad news. He can't go home and she can't stay here because this is the sorrow that the prophets warned them both about. Cisco took a new job. Yeah. Without consulting her. <laughs> the hours are kind of demanding. But also, it's kind of a make-my-own-hour situation. Like, working in the Celestial Temple has some advantages. Right. Uh, he's going to be honest about that. But also the downsides. They have a lot of strict rules about uh, bringing your own personal items and decorations, <laughs> primarily. Yeah. It's going to be a lot of time spent in this white space. She, she's kind of, you know, 
making an attempt to talk him out of it. She can tell he's really into it. And then, you know, she looks across the white space and sees Sarah kind of glowering at her from one of the corners. And she's like, oh, I see what's going on here. You finally turned on me because your mother never liked me. Let me ask you something. Do you think this show made an intentional choice not to have Cassidy very pregnant in this scene Hmm. to let Ben Sisko off the hook? Because I think this scene hits very differently if Cassidy shows up about ready to give birth. Yeah. And Ben Sisko saying what he what he's saying here about like I got I've got my own mission baby. Yeah. And that mission may be tomorrow and it may be yesterday. You're just going to have to get on my program. <laughs> I think it is so much more painful if Cassidy is close to giving birth to their child than it is right here where it's not even it's not made to be a physical confrontation in the way that it could be it's interesting because one thing I read about this episode is that Avery Brooks did not like the way they wrote the scene initially because it was Cisco is staying in the temple forever right and what he said to the showrunner and the uh, and the co-writer was listen like you're going to have us end this series with a black father leaving a pregnant mother in the lurch and that's, that's pretty tough and that being depicted as this like ascent to heaven moment and i don't really want that to be the end of this character and to their credit, they rewrote it. And, it, you know, they rewrote it in very profity terms. He says, I might be back in a year or yesterday. <laughs> right. I wish you could get away with that in real life. <laughs> you know what? And it's not just Cassidy who gets left holding the baby, but it's Jake. Jake doesn't even get to have closure with his dad. No, because Cassidy is back in the in the wardroom and she has to tell Jake where she was. And Jake... For some reason, Jake, the the character throughout the series who's always been the one who's given voice to the concern about the prophets stealing his father, is never given a moment to reconcile those feelings. Yeah. Ever. He doesn't even, like, if even if he'd had a scene to talk to Cassidy about it, I feel like th- they would have done more to honor his character than they did here. I wonder if this series did the math on the episode that that we've been pilloried over, the one where he's an old man writing the stories and like he saves his father's life mm-hmm. through time and space. Like did this show consider that the de facto conclusion to the Jake and his father relationship in a way that 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 carried the water for this moment? Boy. I don't know if that's fair. I don't know. Anyways, for some reason, Ben does not talk to Jake. Yeah. And uh, we return to the wardroom with just Cassidy and are uh, left to wonder. We never know how hurt Jake is by this. Or not. You know? Like, it may be something that he's had a long enough time to prepare for. I mean, he's a fucking quarter prophet, you know, so. It's true. <laughs> maybe he'll maybe he'll join his dad eventually. He can enter the celestial temple without having to show his passport. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he goes through the quick line at celestial temple 
immigrations and custom. We get a lot of vignettes from here on out. Yeah, there's a clip show with no device, essentially. I was happy to see Miles O'Brien and family move out while utilizing a moving company to do so. Mm-hmm. Uh, when when he finds the little toy soldier on the on the floor, did you notice that the music played a little bit of the soldier boy to the war has come? I did. That was great. I definitely That's did. That's a TNG callback in the music. I love that. It's awesome. Worf takes one last look at his own clips, and none of those clips include Jadzia Dax. So weird. It's because Terry Farrell, uh, rightfully, I would say, did not grant permission to the show to uh, to use her wow. imagery in this episode. Uh, the feelings were still so raw about how she left. Good on the uh, and, uh, actors' union for having that kind of control in the contracts of on-screen performers, yeah. because she got fucked yeah. over, and the fact that she had some control over how they treated her after that yeah. is such a testament to collective bargaining. <laughs> it is unfortunate in the context of these characters and the show that Worf's clip show package does not include Jedzia Dax. Yeah. Uh, instead, we get we get Esri waving goodbye from the top rail before we cut to. They should have said like, "Hey, J- like Terry, we'll give you a hundred thousand dollars. We fucked up. Like, can we use your clips?" They didn't have the budget. Yeah, like that. It, that's actually in the show notes. Wow. Like Terry Farrell's agent had a number that the show was unwilling to pay. Oh man, can you and imagine they made a, a financial choice like? Rick Berman on one side of a desk and Terry Farrell's agent on the other side writing something on a post-it and folding it in half and sliding it across the desk. I wonder what the difference is between a clip and a framed picture because we've gotten framed wedding picture before for this utility, but to not even see Jadzia Dax is such a great omission to this clip package for Worf that it makes it hard to accept. Yeah, it does. It was, was, I was really sad not to see her because she was a great character and, and I was happy to see Esri because I think that Nicole DeBoer made a really compelling character in the limited time that she had and in the thankless circumstances that she had. I really agree. Especially, I feel like her early episodes were a challenge and she was able to through force of will make her character compelling and interesting yeah. in a way that uh that i really admired by the end of the series she's really terrific odo keeps his clip shows in a bucket <laughs> they're mostly of kira and that's why he gives that bucket to her what we don't know is what's going to happen to the calder sculpture in his apartment <laughs> i mean do you just disassemble that and and move it out the door was that beamed in originally and you got to beam it out <laughs> it's it's like when you walk around new york and you see like those uh those places where obviously like you drop a hook to bring up a sofa and through a window right like i don't know how 
Odo put together his his furniture. It may have come flat pack, but most of that flat pack furniture you can't disassemble as easily as you put it together. I would say of all of the characters who get the clip show package, Quark is given the shortest shrift because all of his memories are of other people doing their things. Yeah. And for as much as an antihero as Quark was, Quark had his moments on the show. Yeah. And the moments they chose to show in this in this clip package didn't really feel like they belonged to him. And I think of all of the vignettes in this moment, this was the part that, that maybe didn't hit as hard for me. It made me feel bad for Armin Shimmerman and yeah. all the great work that he'd done on the show up until now. I wonder if that's informed by the choices they made to sort of wrap up the affairs of the Ferengi in the previous episode. Yeah, because if you'll notice, Rom is not part of any of these clips. Yeah. The pantheon of Ferengis that we met in this series weren't yeah. really a part of it. So it's really yeah. just him. And and yeah, I agree that they kind of... I mean, like, the show... If the show had any sense of humor about itself, it would show, like, Alan Moraine in this, you know? Right. Like, come on. Like, give us those ridiculous... Like, give us the quirk going to the planet with all the, like, muscly... Uh, strong men with the, with the red and white faces... I fully agree. You know? Yeah. I admit that you're corny. Yeah, those are the moments that, that are absent here. Yeah. Jake and Cassidy get a moment that gives us the suggestion of what their domestic life is going to be going forward. Like, it, it would appear as though they're going to live together. And Jake's reel is just of all of the fashions that he's had to endure wearing over the years. <laughs> and that, and maybe he'll go live in the house on the land that his dad bought. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. That, that part is left very unresolved. Yeah. They show him taking the, the roof off of his dad's dollhouse and like throwing out all the furniture and putting in like kind of more like mid-century, kind of like contemporary, yeah. kind of cool looking stuff. They're like, yeah, this is like yeah. obviously like my dad's style is a little different from mine, so I'm I'm gonna kind of re reimagine what what my domestic situation might look like while he's off hanging out with his prophet friends or whatever. There's a special chair made for scalp massages. <laughs> Kira and Odo uh, head out, and they they get like one last goodbye from Quark in the hallway. Quark and Odo, two ends of a of a spectrum who nonetheless love each other. That man loves me. I really love that there's so much verbal jousting between Odo and Quark, and the scene between Bashir and O'Brien is wordless. Yeah. I love that contrast so much. Yeah. The friendship that Odo and Quark had was entirely about that kind of combat, and yeah, we know what the friendship that O'Brien and Bashir had was about, and it was just about two cool dudes that loved each other. So Kira's driven Odo out to the Salton Sea, <laughs> where uh, where his final mission is to is to turn that liquid from green to red, and uh, yeah. he does one last Odo trick before he does. You always said I looked good in a tuxedo. I think it's interesting that uh, that Kira holds out both of her hands in kind of a bowl shape. Yeah. And he drops a finger 
into that bowl mm-hmm. and it's like here's something to remember me by <laughs> one for the road kira and it's like a finger that turns into two rabbit ear shaped fingers and <laughs> kind of a string of pearls around a cylinder yeah then he uh, wades into the lake and turns around and goes gold you know they considered the terminator 2 thumbs up mm-hmm. there are no bad ideas in the writers room i i am positive that that was on the whiteboard at some point oh, like yeah. what is the final gesture of odo going into the pool that's on the list. You can't tell me that it isn't. I wish that it looked a little bit more distinct because the the color that they picked for Disease Lake is like a dark green that doesn't mm-hmm. look that different from the dark gold that he turns it into. And I really wanted right. it to look like dumping chemicals into an algae-filled swimming pool where it just, it just like sorts it out. Kira, the moment she materializes on that island, should be like, (laughs) (laughs) oh, God. Oh, this is bad. Yeah. It should have been a flake lake. It should have been a flake lake. Yeah. Back on Deep Space Nine, uh, Nog reports to Kira now, who is the new occupant of Cisco's office, a Cisco who has left his baseball behind, which... In any other context would mean that he plans to come back. Yeah. Which is an interesting liminal space to leave the series. It could be next year. It could be yesterday. Yeah. Bashir and Ezri make plans for later. They're they're kind of the one of the two remaining characters in this setting. Yeah. Uh, the Alamo is off limits as a place to make plans though. But there is a program that Bashir proposes based on the movie Troy that Esri might enjoy. And, and Esri Dax is like, I heard that movie fucking sucks. <laughs> like, why would I ever want to do that on the, on the hollow suite? As a matter of fact, the director's cut is quite compelling. Four butts. And uh, we get one last look at Morn, who Quark gives some hair-growing tonic to. Yeah. And uh, Kira confronts Quark about taking bets on who the new Kai will be. seems like if you bar gambling at Quarks, that's a lot of the fun of being at Quarks. Yeah. Being made illegal. And uh, not a good look for Kira, I would say. Like, I'm, I, was, I was disappointed to see this. <laughs> yeah. To be honest. But, uh, but she, she, she pulls out of her, her steep descent by comforting Jake a little bit, who is standing by the... Uh, the Jonathan Frakes Memorial leaning window bumming out and we get the Jonathan Frakes Memorial pull out from Deep Space Nine shot last shot of the series a, a long long pull out of Deep Space Nine with a, some kind of nebula in the background and that is the end of Deep Space Nine that's it Did you like this episode, Ben? You really want to do this here now? Okay, okay, let's do it, do it. I really did. I think that it is a uniquely hard thing to do. Think about all the movies that have three acts and the first and second act are great and the third act is like, man, it's not great, but I liked the first two thirds of it enough that I'm going to give the whole movie a pass. 
and you know 93 minutes or whatever this is to end your seven season series is not a lot of time and I think that what I admire about this is how much in its own direction it went it did not feel like the end of TNG at all didn't feel like it felt like it needed to follow in the footsteps of TNG at all and I think that they did a great job of knowing how to conclude stories where they needed to be concluded and leave ambiguity and openness where it needed to be left. Like, we can use our imaginations to think about what all this means for these characters. And, you know, uh, I think that if I have a main misgiving about the whole deal, it's that war is not the thing I think Star Trek is best at grappling with as a subject. And the Dominion War is such a huge part of Deep Space Nine and such a huge part of the end of Deep Space Nine that it's hard to think about Deep Space Nine without thinking about war. And I think that they do a great job with that, but I also kind of prefer my Star Trek to be a little bit more optimistic in general. So if if I have a larger knock against it, it's that they set themselves up for completing this as the triumphant yeah. end to a huge war. But that being said, this doesn't feel like celebrating a victory you know and the and the one scene that they had set up for that was belt buckle and zisco and martok drinking on the surface of cartier that scene could have been 10 minutes long to me yeah it could have it could have been but i like that that it doesn't feel right to them it's true to their natures right so overall i think this is a really strong end to a very strong series and i I'm so glad uh, we got to watch all of this. I think there's two ways to approach this episode. It's as an episode or it's as a goodbye to the series. And I think it's unfortunate that the end of Star Trek The Next Generation is going to be the thing that at the time this finale was measured against. Because what made... Picard's last scene with his crew on Next Gen so powerful was that he had grown into that moment of being able to articulate his appreciation of his friends and of his crew. And I think what was so much fun about this crew is also what made that challenge so much more difficult in its finale. This crew has always been able to articulate its love for each other. Mm -hmm. And so there was never a moment during this ending where you were like, you reached that catharsis of, my God, like someone finally was able to say the thing that they wanted to say. Someone was finally able to express the emotion that they've kept bottled up. Yeah. So while... I feel like as an episode, it is great. And as a conclusion to the war, it's a story that's ably told. It did not reach into my chest and 
and hurt me in the way that I know Star Trek is able to do up until this point. Mm -hmm. And I wish it were able to do that. And I don't know why it couldn't. And I have no suggestions for <laughs> ideas for how it could have done that because uh, yeah. I'm kind of a moving target emotionally. But, <laughs> but like all I can tell you is that the end of Star Trek The Next Generation is difficult for me to watch because uh, it is able to, to affect me the way that this finale was not. The end of Star Trek The Next Generation did not need to lean on a clip show to conclude itself. I don't believe Deep Space Nine needed to do that either. Yeah. And I wonder why it chose that path. Especially when they knew that they couldn't do it right. If they couldn't have Terry Farrell in it, write it different. I am in 100% agreement with you. The moment they knew they couldn't actually conclude it, uh, that in a way that included everyone that had helped tell the story, they should have chose yeah. a different path. Yeah. And it felt I mean, like... I, like, I don't know how you rewrite that. Like, yeah. I, you need the unhired X-Men to write that ending. Yeah. I think, it, I, to me, it feels like the perfect ending to this series, but its imperfections are why TNG is my Star Trek over Deep Space Nine. Yeah. And... And that's not a judgment on on people where Deep Space Nine is their Star Trek, you know. Yeah. Like it's just it, it it's just that 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 is that just kind of falls right outside of my area of preference. There's a greater emotional distance between the viewer and these characters than there is on Star Trek: The Next Generation. Yeah, and I think that is an objective statement. I think that is true, and I think that's the reason why this doesn't hit as hard. Well, you know what else is an objective statement, Adam, is that there are a couple of Priority One messages waiting for the two of us on the other side of this delightful music cue. Priority One message from Starfleet coming in on Secured Channel. Need a supplemental income. Supplemental income? Supplemental. Supplemental. Yeah, it's extra. But the interest alone could be enough to buy this ship. Who are the lucky friends of DeSoto who got priority one messages on the finale of Deep Space Nine? Ben, our, our first priority one message is of a promotional nature. The message goes like this. Not again is a brand new <laughs> podcast by two parents who overanalyze and critique all the shows and movies. Their three-year-old makes them rewatch endlessly, such as <laughs> Finding Nemo. My neighbor, Totoro. And go, go, Corey Carson. We're just getting started, so <laughs> thought we'd go to FOD for support since we're a Greatest Gen fans. Listeners need not be parents or previous viewers of these shows or movies to enjoy Not Again. You can follow them at Not Again Pod on Twitter or on Facebook. They're Not Again with Alan and Rebecca. So search for the podcast, not again, with an exclamation point on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It sounds like a fun uh, experience of watching media with your small children. Yeah, they uh, like the parents descending into madness because their kids make them watch the same thing over and over again is it, it's a real leitmotif in my life every 
parents couple we know has that that book that their kids make them read over and over yeah. again or that or that TV show that their kids make them watch over and over again. Alan and Rebecca are like, please do this with us. We don't want to be alone. <laughs> it's less a promotional priority on message and and more a call for help. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, but that sounds like a delightful podcast. And uh, uh, thank you for supporting our show. And uh, congrats on your new podcast, guys. Our next P1 is from David, and it's to Louie. And it goes like this. Happy 30th birthday. There's a good chance you'll hear this way after your actual birthday. Time makes fools of us all. Who would have thought all those years ago at camp we'd still be geeking out together over Star Trek and a Star Trek podcast? Given how dorky we were, it probably wasn't that surprising. Here's to more years of sharing memes. And uh, David asked for any Ferengi-centric episode in uh, sending this uh, message to Louie. And I would say that this... this, this is the last episode for a long time that might qualify. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Are there no Ferengi on Star Trek Voyager? There is. So, do you remember the Barzan wormhole episode of TNG? Yes. And those oh, and those Ferengi shit. that go through the wormhole. There, there's an episode where we catch up with those guys in Voyager. That is great. I'm looking. But forward I don't to know that. if that's. I don't know if that's season one or like season seven. You know. I'm psyched about that. Yeah, so uh, thank you for everyone who left a Priority One message. Um, Please head to MaximumFun.org slash Jumbotron if you'd like to send one of your own. That would be great. We would really appreciate it. And uh, uh, we're booked up, like, at least through... I, uh, I think the first, like, three quarters of the year are mostly spoken for. So, uh... So, so think well in advance. If you're if you've got a time sensitive P one, think well in advance. And uh, gosh, we just it's it's so cool to look at all of these all of these P ones in this spreadsheet and know it's that a, uh, it's a problem that, we're grateful for. Right? <laughs> it really is. Thank you so much to everyone, and uh, thanks for sticking with us through an entire season of Star Trek and booking P ones for our future. It, this is one of those inflection points where I'm like, well, maybe this is it for us. Maybe maybe when we're done with Deep Space Nine, nobody cares about our podcast anymore. And I'm looking at evi- a mountain of evidence that says, no, people will still keep listening. Hey, Adam. What's that, Ben? Did you find yourself a drunk Shimoda? Incredible. Drunk Shimoda! When I think about characters in this final episode or two, depending on how you look at it, it's hard not to find more affection for anyone besides Mila, uh, who's just there to care, right? Yeah. She's got her own life upstairs. We don't know what that's like. We don't know what that's like outside of her confrontation with the the Gem Hagards. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we don't know how how put out she must have been when her sex dungeon had to be taken over as quote unquote a seller by some rebels or whatever completely agree yeah uh i could have used the moogie treatment with mila 
on Deep Space Nine as a just a refrain for the series because I found her so compelling and neat yeah. as a character. So uh, because I will never get that opportunity again, I'm going to make her my drunk Shimoda. What about you, Ben? My drunk Shimoda is Worf uh, because like I think that we should probably talk a little bit about Michael Dorn and the fact that this is the last Worf episode of Star Trek, as far as we know. Uh, there may be some Worf in upcoming Star Trek colon Picard, uh, which I really look forward to. Um, and I think that Worf, as a character, really saw his stock fall in Deep Space Nine in a big way. But uh, and 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 I think that like the the conclusion for him didn't feel quite as grand as the way he was brought on to this series. It's almost as if they assume his character will live on almost immediately. Totally. We don't really need to wind things up for Worf because the Worf series is obviously right, right around the corner. Right. And and I think that Michael Dorn took everything that was written for this character and gave so much to it. Yeah. Like from season one of TNG to season seven of Deep Space Nine, whether it was well written or not, put so much English on that baseball. Like he fucking acted the hell out of Worf for and better or for worse. You and I have not held back on our many criticisms of the character, but I don't think we have ever been anything less than really appreciative of what he brought to it in spite yeah. of what he was given. Michael Dorn has done great work. Amazing, like, s like series slash franchise defining work. And right. he gets my drunk Shimoda on this episode because when they have a conversation with the group about where the O'Briens might set up shop when they move to Earth, Worf says the word Minsk like 15 times. <laughs> And yeah. it made me it made me laugh more every time he said it. And I th I think that as appreciators of comedy, you and I have not given Michael Doran enough credit for how funny he can be. Like he is yeah. so funny in that scene. With he a knew single word, he knew exactly how to play that and how to be as funny as possible with it. And like, God, Michael Doran, what a fucking gift to Star Trek he has been. Agreed. I like that your final Shimoda for Deep Space Nine was that. A good time so often has a downside, doesn't it? Especially when it comes to stuff that you put in your birdie. We've all been hungover before. I mean, many of us have, I guess. Or we've had too much jazz in our gummy. And that sucks, right? Because you don't think about the time after the good time that you've been trying to have a good time. That's why I like Lumi Labs so much. It's the predictability. Through painstaking trial and error, I have found my perfect dose. It's what I can depend on when I can use a little more chill, a little help getting into a creative headspace, and I don't need to have too much fun doing whatever it is I need to be doing. And I'm so glad that Microdose is available nationwide. That means just about anyone can try it. 
To learn more about microdosing THC, go to microdose.com and use the code SCARVES to get free shipping and 30% off your first order. Again, that's microdose.com and the code is SCARVES. One of the amazing things about making The Greatest Generation is getting to see all of the cool, creative stuff that the Friends of DeSoto make when we do a Code 47 episode. People send in handcrafted stuff all the time, and they send in their books, they send in paintings, they send in uh, crochet work. It's so cool. And uh, I want a few more of you to have websites to direct us to in those letters. I want you to put your beautiful work on display for the world so that when we get to look at it, we can tell people where to go to get a look at it themselves. And you don't have to know anything about building a website to build a website these days because you can use Squarespace. It'll look beautiful no matter what kind of device people are looking at it on. Hell, you can even sell stuff using a Squarespace website. Don't make your cool, creative project captain's eyes only. Head to squarespace.com slash scarves for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code SCARVES to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. It has been a long time coming that podshop.biz is as good as it is. The stuff on there is just really high quality, and there's a ton of variety. We've got t-shirts and sweatshirts, obviously, but we've got hats, we've got mugs, we've got water bottles, patches, mouse pads, shower shoes. There's so much great stuff on there. I'm really proud of what we have on offer. I'm proud that the store has a lot of really great size-inclusive options. And uh, I think there's enough variety that just about any friend of DeSoto could find something that they'd really love to have in their collection at podshop.biz. So head over there and give it a look. Why don't you? Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. Well, Adam, uh, we have some business to attend to coming up. We're going to do our series wrap-up, right? That's our next episode. Are we? We're not doing a full series rewatch, are we? 
No, we don't have to do that. We don't have time. I thought we were just going to go right into Voyager. I had no okay. idea we were going to do a, a middle ep. Well, we did an in-between TNG and Deep Space Nine where we, we did like our Mount Armus and our Mount Nuckmore. Oh, we should definitely do that. Let's do let's do that then. I didn't remember that we had. So it sounds like we're going to do a middle episode, a connective tissue episode between yeah. DS9 and Voyager where we, we recognize some of the achievements of Deep Space Nine. Yeah. Uh, talk about Deep Space Nine as a series instead of uh, episode by episode. Right. Before we're ready to kick off our brand new Greatest Generation series of podcasts about Star Trek Voyager. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to all of that. And, uh, you know, this is a very transitional time in so many ways for us as podcasters. And uh, we really appreciate everybody that has uh, started with and stuck with us over all of these years and all of these episodes. I mean, we're like... this. I think this is episode 351 of this show. Yeah. Kind of a crazy thing to think of. We do our best to say thanks at the end of every episode we do, but I think at the end of a series it might be uh, a better time to just say thanks to everyone who's enjoyed the show or said a nice thing about it. Uh, up until now, everyone who supported the show, the supporters of the show make it possible for Ben and I to keep doing it. Yeah. And everyone who has like joked around with us on the internet and sent us funny Star Trek stuff, like it's just uh, what a what a joy to get to do this as a I say main thing I I think about every week like it is it has brought so much fun and delight into my life and helped helped me reconnect with a a thing that has been a lifelong love of mine on like this whole new level and yeah being friends with the friends of DeSoto has been such a blessing it's one thing for you and I to to like record and make the show but it is another thing for the Friends of DeSoto to build and continue to strengthen the fan community that, that surrounds us and that surrounds each other. Yeah. Uh, like week. all of the friendships that have come out of this, like friendships that we may never even find out about because they right. happened on the internet in a way that, you know, just wasn't visible to us. Is It's so fucking cool. <laughs> like it's so yeah. cool to think about all of... All of you and all of the, like, love that you have for Star Trek and all of the love that you have for each other. And, uh, hey, I raised my glass. My, my, my last glass of these bubbly, bubbly wines to all of you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to two entire Star Trek series with us. And uh, we'll be back with you next week with the series wrap-up of Deep Space Nine. And we got a couple of thank yous to get out of the way on top of that, if you can believe it. Um, we got we to gotta thank our buddy Adam Ragusea, who is, is toiling in the dungeon on new music for the show uh, to reflect the, the new Star Trek Voyager reality we are moving into. 
And uh, I saw there was a thread on the Greatest Gen subreddit recently where people were talking about just how, how much fun the DS9 uh, interstitial music has been. And, and yeah. like, like people have real, like, serious fondness for it that I, I totally respect because when Adam Ragusea sent us that music when we first were starting on Deep Space Nine, it was like stuck in my head for weeks and weeks <laughs> yeah i mean one of the gifts of this show has been being able to build relationships with people like adam ragusia like bill tilly like like everyone who seeks to make a contribution to it for no other reason than loving it than thinking that it has a value that thinking yeah. that it's a fun thing to be a part of yeah. It's amazing because you and I know how much work it is to do this every week. And it's a lot. And to see how many people put in an effort into making sure that it's cared for and fed in in all of the many ways that it is, it's an amazing thing to experience. It really is. I'll never take that for granted. Yeah. We got to shout out the card daddy, Bill Tilly, the official uh, social media maven of the greatest generation. Follow the social media accounts at Greatest Trek on Instagram and Twitter. He makes those really, really fun to follow. And uh, he also makes uh, hilarious trading cards based on every episode. We may be in for a hologram card after the end of Deep Space Nine. I, I will be delighted to find out if one emerges. Those are always very exciting to, uh, to open up an encounter. Yeah. And thank you to all of you who have supported the show in all of the ways you do. We really, really appreciate every single one of you. Thank you for listening. Everyone who's ever sent us a gift to open on the show, everyone who's ever sent us a cameo from Nana Visitor, everyone... <laughs> which, is, which is more than a few of you. <laughs> everyone who's ever come to a live show, everyone who's ever booked a live show for us. Yeah. Uh, thank you for everything. We're really excited to come back and uh, talk about the next Star Trek series with you, Star Trek Voyager. Couldn't be more excited. And with that, we'll be back at you next time with another great recap of Star Trek Deep Space Nine and an episode of The Greatest Generation that uses that opportunity to just talk more than you'd think about Jake Sisko. <laughs> this isn't wine, it's tequila and five alive and those little marshmallows you put in cocoa. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.